Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app for your iPhone. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences on planet Earth. Uh, whether you want to share a recent road trip, a vacation, your favorite bars and restaurants, your favorite museums or monuments, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use this app to follow your friends, your family, or your favorite artists, your favorite actors, your favorite musicians, writers, whoever. And then when you build your own curations, you can pull in photos from Instagram and Facebook. You can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share your curations on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Google+. Sweet Spot is a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, and this is important, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is available for free at iTunes. This is two complete strangers talking for the first time. How are you? I hope you're well. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have a good show for you today. My guest is Courtney Moreno. She's got a debut novel out on McSweeney's. It's called In Case of Emergency. And uh, we had a good talk, and I'm excited to share that with you in just a moment. Uh, first, what is happening? What is happening? Uh, you know, just uh, sitting here looking at the internet, <laughs> reading bad news. I got to stop reading bad news. And yet I feel compelled to read bad news. I want to know what's going on in the world. That's a healthy impulse. But 
Do I really want to know? I'm not so sure anymore. Like if something really shitty happens, people will just tell me. Like something seriously, monumentally shitty. Or it will just be at my doorstep. (laughs) In which case nobody will need to tell me. But the consumption of news, especially on a 24-hour cycle, seems maybe uh, like overdoing it. Maybe I should just not pay attention. Maybe I should just not vote, not give a shit. Fuck it. That can't be the right attitude. There are people who are like that, though. George Carlin, hero of mine, didn't vote. Maybe I'll just tune out, go about my business. I don't know. Uh, So, (laughs) what a dismal uh, tone I've taken here at the start of the show. I apologize. Uh, War, Ebola. That's what's on my mind. And uh, like Bruce Springsteen just turned 65. I'm not even a Bruce Springsteen fan in like a really uh, concentrated way. I don't have anything against him. I don't hate his music. But he does symbolize something for me culturally. You know, it's like, oh, he's 65. Shit. Who do we have that would take Bruce Springsteen's like spot in the culture? He seems like he seems like America. <laughs> I don't know. There'll be somebody. There always is. Justin no, Justin Bieber's Canadian. <laughs> he can never do it. So, I I keep getting mail. Let me read some of that. I got I got mail from a listener named John. Uh he's criticizing my reading taste. He says, uh, "Dear Brad, I find it surprising that you had such nice things to say about the Razor's Edge." The Somerset Mom novel. Uh, I tried to read it after listening to you talk about it on the show and couldn't get through it. This book changed your life? Come on. Signed, John. So, I should, you know, he's right. It's not that great of a book. But it did, like, it tweaked me when I was, like, what, in my early 20s. Like, late teens, early 20s, whenever I read it. Timing has a lot to do with how books impact you or how any art impacts you, as I'm sure you know. And that book, and like the Larry Darrell character in particular, just the just the fact that he was like this war veteran who was set up to have this kind of bougie, easy life, and he turned his back on it. And and then the fact that he could, like he called it in the book, he calls it loafing. He, he just he just wants to loaf and read books and like think about, uh, you know, why we're here, study like spiritual traditions and meditate and shit. Yeah, he could do that. He yeah, he had a trust fund. It's the dream. <laughs> he didn't have to work. He couldn't live lavishly, but of course he didn't want to. That's what I wanted. Just enough money just to get by, not have to go, like, sit somewhere, you know? Feel comfortable. You know you can just loaf. Everyone should have that in a perfect world. But the book itself, you know, no. It's, you know, maybe at a younger age, but not now. So thanks for writing, John. I also got a letter from a listener named Beth who wanted to uh, comment on my use of the word retarded, which, uh, as uh, you know, regular listeners know, generated mail and criticism. And, uh, you know, I've addressed that on previous episodes. But Beth here says, hey, Brad, it's your fellow misophonic listener and librarian and book reviewer, Beth from North Carolina. Just heard your email from another listener who busted you for saying retarded. Perhaps you should use a trick from your fellow podcaster, Dan Savage, who also got blasted for the same thing. 
he decided to use his made-up word, leotarded, instead of the dreaded R-word. He now uses it all the time. I like it so much, our family has adopted it as well. Everyone knows exactly what you mean, and yet you're not offending anyone. Perfection. And for the record, I really like your monologues and your personal additions. That's part of what makes listening enjoyable. We feel like we know you, and we're all your friends, and we're hanging out with our friend and an author for a chat. Don't change a thing. Signed, Beth. So, uh, you know, uh, leotarded. I mean, because then it's like, well, you know what you're saying. It's like, might as well just say it. But, you know, you're speaking in code. I find it frustrating and tiring. But I don't want to offend people. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. That's my, because that is my litmus for uh, language. You know, words in and of themselves are not evil. Or there's nothing wrong with them. You can swear. My daughter can swear. But if she uses a word in a hurtful way. But that's kind of what I said. If you, well, you know. If you call someone a retard in a mean way. That sucks. If you say that, um, you know, war is retarded, that doesn't offend me. But I get why some people would tire of that usage too. So you try. So I'll try to reel it in. Leotarded. <laughs> that is sort of enjoyable. I'll ponder that, Beth, and I appreciate the input. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So... Uh, yeah, let's get with, let's get on with the program. Courtney Moreno is my guest. Her novel is called In Case of Emergency. It is a debut. It's out on the McSweeney's imprint. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did. This is Courtney Moreno, and her novel, once again, is called In Case of Emergency. Okay, so, and you're up in San Francisco. I am, yeah. All right. And, and, but you, uh, you know, you have, I think you have an interesting occupational background. You also have an interesting educational background, uh, for a writer because what you got, you studied molecular biology. I did. I got a, a bachelor's in biology, but I also minored in, um, dance and performance studies. So it's 
Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but that's, see, that's unusual. I feel like writers are usually in a narrower channel than that. So how did you, I mean, were you, were you, uh, were your parents like, we want you to be a doctor? Was it one of those things? And then you went into bio biology or were you actually like a science person? And that was, you know, you thought you were going to be a biologist. What do you do with that? I mean, a little bit of both. I think, um, my parents were really excited about me becoming either a doctor or a lawyer. Um, you know, I had two choices. <laughs> uh, and, I was really interested in biology in high school, especially. I mean, I think the pictures wrote me in. You know, you've got these, like, giant pictures of, like, tree frogs and <laughs> all kind, you know, the inside of a, a plant or something or, like, some crazy little organism that looks like a spaceship um, that's actually a virus. You know, I, I got into it kind of for those reasons. And then once I was in college and my major was biology, I was like, oh, this is going to be a really boring future for me. <laughs> And so, like, like, I yeah, I wanted to be, like, the next Jane Goodall. And I was like, oh, Jane Goodall, what she actually did was, like, sit there and go, okay, the gorilla blinked at 11.02 a.m. Yeah. And she's she's living in the jungle in a hut. Like, it's not that glamorous. (laughs) It's not glamorous at all. Yeah. And I've I've worked plenty of non-glamorous jobs, but I think you've got to really... You've got to have, like, the oomph behind it to be like, this one. <laughs> I want this non-glamorous job. And I didn't quite have that when it came to biology. Well, and there's, like, I mean, and just to, like, go into the Jane Goodall thing. There was Jane Goodall, and then was it Diane Fossey? Is that who it was? I don't know Diane Fossey. Which one I, was this? I don't know. I feel like there was another woman who loved the gorillas. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah. No, she started a trend, I think. Yeah, and it's like... Uh, um, hang on. Yeah, Diane Fossey was an American zoologist... Who studied mm-hmm. who studied gorillas? Okay, so that's her Wikipedia. So, uh, but I yeah, feel like, I, I feel like there's sort of like a cultural position almost for like attractive woman who loves the gorillas. <laughs> Do you know what I'm right. saying? Right, it's just off on her own. <laughs> yeah, yes. and she's got her that's, hair. She's got her hair in like a, a braid, and she's like sitting in mm-hmm. the jungle, and like you know who? Yeah, beautiful hippie. Yes, yep. yeah, exactly, beautiful hippie woman. So you were you were for at least a blink of an eye like the heir apparent, but then it quickly went off the rails. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Um, all right. So, and then you were, you're studying molecular biology and dance. Yeah. Okay. So that's a weird pairing. And you, so clearly you're, you're a good dancer. Oh, thanks. Also, also also not, not, yeah, but also not something that most writers can claim. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it was tricky. It was, it was kind of like coming out or something like talking to my, it was actually easier coming out as a queer person than it was coming out to my parents about being an artist. Um, that was actually a much harder conversation to be like, I actually really like to dance and perform and this is what I want to do. So, yeah, in, in my early 20s, it was kind of like I used science stuff as a day job, but my real focus and passion and drive was to try to work with companies in the Bay Area, and um, which is what happened. I became a professional dancer. I'm still doing that. Um, like ballet? Or? Yeah. I didn't do it in L.A. There, there's a different, very different scene in L.A. It's much more about, like, music videos or... Um, no, but I, I said I said ballet, not L.A. <laughs> oh, ballet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, no, L.A. dancing, a whole different thing. Um, yeah, no, I didn't. I was never bunhead. I've, I've taken, like, two ballet classes in my whole life, but um do modern dance, so it's like... It's it's kind of a similar idea, but there's more like floor work, and you're you work in parallel as well as like the turned out positions. 
I just, yeah, it's going way over my head because I... Yeah, it's fine. We can skip it. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I'm fascinated. I'm just uh, arrhythmic and, you know, the the farthest I've gotten is taking my four-year-old daughter to like a ballet class. That's about as close as I've ever been. So so where are you from originally? I'm from LA originally. Oh, you are? Okay. So you grew up here. What what part of town? Oh, South Bay, like San Pedro. Okay. And your folks wanted you to become either a doctor or a lawyer? That was the idea. That was the idea. Um, like, how how explicit was that made to you? Um, you know, it wasn't like, okay, Courtney, you have two choices, you know, but there there just was, it was kind of like any time I did well in school or, you know, got good feedback from teachers or, you know, had good tests or anything like that, I'd be like, oh, you're so smart, you know, you could really be a doctor <laughs> you know so there was just this constant like anytime there was the affirmation I think it was kind of paired I don't, I don't think they intentionally set out to say here's what you have to be when you grow up um, but I think it was just whether they knew it or not the, the suggestion was very much there of like because you are smart you should do these things or these respected types of careers that smart people do or something like that yeah, I mean, it is kind of nice. It does, like, in, in especially in American culture, confer, like, a certain respectability upon a person automatically. Like, regardless exactly. of, how, of how actually, like, good you are at the job. Just, yeah. ha- just, having, the, <laughs> just having the title. Like, oh, you're a lawyer. Right. Oh, you're a doctor. Yeah. You know, like, and I, yeah. I, I find myself doing that. Like, I'll say, oh, you're a doctor. Oh, yeah. I feel inferior to you immediately, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out. I never even, you know, took that route. Um, okay, so you grew up, and just so people listen and get an idea, because not everybody's familiar with the geography of uh, Southern California, San Pedro is not like center of the city, Los Angeles. That's sort of, it's su- south suburbs, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think people refer to L.A. as, yeah, like, it's, some, it's a single city or something, actually, a giant county, and um, the South Bay part is not anywhere near to L.A. proper, really. It's like an hour at least away. Right. Yeah. So you grew up and you had like kind of a, a suburban childhood. Yeah. Relative, yep. relatively happy. Yeah. Okay. And did you have siblings or anything? Oh, see, I've got a really weird American family in that way. Uh, I basically grew up an only child, but my dad had three marriages. So in his first marriage, he had two kids, and they're about fifteen years older than me. So like half brother, half sister, they're much older, and then my um, little sister got adopted. She's 20 years younger than me. So it's this weird experience of like, I grew up without siblings essentially, but I actually have three siblings, but they're almost 20 years apart in either direction. Whoa. <laughs> so yeah, it's very bizarre. And then my little sister's Chinese. My older sister and brother, half sister and brother are Cuban. And then I just look really white. So there's, you know, it's just quite the range. So wait, are your your older brother and sister biological? Are they um, all, yeah, are they all biological, or, or it's, it's, you said your younger sister's Chinese. Is that adopted, or is that your father remarried a Chinese American woman? Oh right, so she's adopted from China, um, and then the half brother, half sister are. Um, so my dad is Cuban, which is why they're full blooded Cuban. But then when he married my mom and had me, my mom is white. So, but yeah, family reunions are sort of interesting. <laughs> I mean, and the, yeah, can None you, of us can, look alike. Can you relate to, I mean, I know obviously when you're you're a kid, like even just a few years could make it difficult to relate, especially as you get into adolescence. Mm-hmm. But when there's that much of a gap, 
you know, it's like you almost don't even know one another until you become adults. Like, have you become close with them as you've gotten older or is it, do you still feel a distance or? Mm, I mean, I've definitely tried to be, I, with my little sister, I try to be super involved. Um, even if it's just talking on the phone and now she's a big texter, but like we used to read the Harry Potter books to each other over the phone when she was younger. Um, and then I try to get down there when I can for holidays or that kind of thing. Um, so it's, you know, it's not like a sibling relationship. It's more like I'm, I'm the aunt or something like that, but definitely try to stay close and just kind of watch her grow up. Um, yeah, and then with, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say distance is tough, you know, like physical distance yes. in family. Cause like yes. my sisters and I are closer in age by a long shot than you are with your siblings, but um, they live a long way away and, you know, mm-hmm. we're close in our way, but it's like, man, we just don't talk nearly as as much as I, I guess some people do. Like I, I look at some families and they're like, oh yeah, we talk every day. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, like I talk, <laughs> to my, I, I talk to my sisters like once a month, like, you know, maybe, you know, it seems like, and I, that's, you know, as much my fault as it is theirs, but, um, it's hard. I don't know. Distance is tough. I, I sort of wish I had one of those families where we all lived in the same town sometimes, but I guess that has its downsides too. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it does. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you grow up, um, your parents, uh, are like artistic people at all? No. Um, I wouldn't say so. My, they were both cops. They met as cops. And then, um, my mom went on to become a lawyer and a judge. So they were kind of tough as nails parents to grow up with. And, and it's not like I wasn't exposed to art. I mean, I, I read a ton as a kid and got taken to musical theater and um, plays and stuff. And I some music here and now that I pretty much know all the words to like 60s and 70s songs because of my mom's, you know, love of that music. Um, so I think it's also kind of a big shift for me in college. It's like I... I like this, you know, it was like completely different than anything that I'd grown up with or been exposed to really. Like I didn't go see dance as a kid at all. Um, and I was also always told that I was like super uncoordinated, which I guess was true. I mean, I remember having like lots of bumps on the head and stuff like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> never going to the nurse's office quite a bit. So I don't think I was the most coordinated kid. But, um, well, that gives yeah, me, that gives me hope for my daughter, you know, like she, I mean, yeah. cause like my wife and or I, even I, for you, well, yeah. Or even for me, I could become a late bloomer, but I feel like <laughs> n- neither of us were like, I mean, I was a decent athlete, but like never anything special. My wife, um, like I've never even seen her run <laughs> like ever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I look at my daughter and I'm like, well, we took her to soccer and it was kind of like, you know, I don't know how this is going to go, but we want her to have fun and. You know, we'll see how, you know, we'll see what happens. But I think, like, just getting them out and doing stuff can can help the cause. Yes, yeah. So your parents were cops. Yeah. What is, uh, you know, like, what does that mean? Like, your dad and mom, they're out there, like, on the beat, like, uh, you know, like, like I don't know. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, some cops, I yeah, feel like, are yeah. more, like, desk jobs. Others are doing, like, you know, traffic tickets. And, you know, like, how does it all work? Like, what exactly were they doing? Well, so I didn't have a lot of direct experience with this because, like, my earliest memories, I remember my mom passing the bar and becoming a lawyer, and then I remember, like, going to work with her sometimes when she was a lawyer, but I don't remember so much um, the cop thing and same with my dad, I, and I think they were LA County sheriffs, um, 
And for my mom especially, that was a huge deal. I mean, she was one of the first female police officers ever. <laughs> she was in the, the, one of the first academies where they allowed women in. And even when she had gone all the way through the academy, they still didn't even make female uniforms because they were so sure it wasn't going to work out. So she got stationed in Watts and had this, yeah, she got put in Watts right away. Her partner basically did not have her back at all. And she had this giant uniform on that didn't fit her and had to wear a helmet at all times. And she would, yeah, no, it was just her stories about it are just insane. So she, you know, if she got a call for something and she went to go, talk to the person or try to deal they she, she tells these stories of people just being like wait a second are you a girl this <laughs> 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 response of like who's under the helmet like what's going on there's <laughs> just no yeah it's just it's a totally unprecedented thing so um i'm trying to convince her to write a book about this i was gonna say it's a, she's a she yeah. seems like a woman of unique accomplishment like that's pretty cool yes yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, did your um, parents? I mean, did your parents? I mean, she's didn't watch. She must have seen some gnarly stuff. I mean, were the were your parents ever coming home from work? Like, oh my god, you know, telling you stories that were uh, tr- no. difficult? Or? No, because I was like three or four at the time. Oh, <laughs> so okay, that would have been awkward. <laughs> bed, bed, bedtime story, you know. Yeah, but it actually did kind of become a, a bonding thing. I think when I became an EMT, because like. I think because I worked in some of the toughest areas of L.A., um, I don't, it just became this, this thing where I was like, okay, I suddenly can really understand like the kinds of things you've seen and have hinted at you know, when I was a kid growing up and had no clue. Um, so that, that, was kind of, that was kind of nice in this way to like, be an adult and then kind of relate to this past version of my parents yeah, as and- adults. And I want to get to I want to get to the EMT stuff um, soon, but I want to make sure that uh, you know we, we we trace you to that point, you know, because you sure. you were a good student in high school. Your parents were thinking doctor or lawyer. Um, you then went to Berkeley. Yeah. And you said I'm going to be uh, I'm going to major in molecular biology, thinking that you were a pre med, and then things started to shift. There. I actually. Yeah, I wasn't actually going to do pre-med. I think I, I was thinking like research scientist going out with the monkeys. Okay. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that was real. that was the idea. <laughs> no, for real. I was like, I want to work in the rainforest. I want to like study some weird lizard, you know. Right. Um, yeah, it was like the idea of like, if that's not for me, maybe I would go into medicine or something, you know. It wasn't super clear, but so, yeah. And so was. you're at Berkeley. Like, did the culture get to you? Like, did you, did you, I mean, did... You go to Berkeley and start experimenting with drugs or anything, and then did that? Did that? that, But I mean, seriously, because that can have a that can cause a shift. That can cause a shift in someone and say, all of a sudden, they're like, you know what? I want to paint, or you know, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, I did. I did experiment with drugs. um, Started sleeping with girls, you know. But everything changed. Total like Berkeley hippie. This is why parents are afraid to send their kids there. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. and so you had that shift, and then when did you come out to your parents? Um, probably like I don't know. Like I, I think I think what happened, a bunch of stuff went down. Like my, oh, it's hard to remember. Sophomore, junior year, I think, um, where I just started really having some like kind of panic attacks and and 
really kind of freaking out. I mean, I think part of it is that young person thing where you're like, I'm supposed to know right now what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Right. And I was such a like type A, straight A student, you know, it was just like on task, on task, on task. So to have to experience the shift of like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. <laughs> you know, like I don't think that I actually like this. I'm, I don't think this is what I want to grow up to be. And all these other things are super interesting to me, but like it was hard to reconcile that with who I thought I was. And then I was super terrified to tell my parents. So I actually about what about about not knowing about not knowing what you wanted to do with your life or about uh, yes. being gay. Yeah, no. Well, I'm I'm actually queer. I did I've dated men and women, so okay. I, I don't quite hold to the like one end of the spectrum purely. But um, yeah, I I came out as queer, um, and that was fine. I mean, it wasn't like fantastic, but it wasn't bad. It definitely wasn't bad. Um, and then a few months later, I was like, so I don't know about this whole <laughs> biology degree, and I'm not sure that this is what I want to do, and I think I might want to like take some time off, or I might even want to switch and be like a dance major, and that was like a volcano going off, I and mean, it was just kind of horrible. Wow. Um, Which one of them took it harder? My mom, definitely. It's, you know, and the thing is, though, and like I get this a lot more now that I have a kid, but like parents are scared for their children. And like, especially oh, if, yeah. if you have a child who's, if you're fortunate enough to have a child who's a straight A type A person, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah. which, which is like in a way a relief. You're like, okay, they got their shit together. At least one of us does, you know, or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, right. and, and then suddenly they're like, oh, by the way, I think I might want to be a dancer. Like, I get it. I can see you being like, yeah. no, but no, you're so close. You know, <laughs> like we've almost. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I had a lot of empathy. Her, I think, and it, it it was something that was super hard for us at the time, and hard for our relationship at the time. But I think, like now, it's it's much rounder and softer and more forgiving, and um, you know, she's super supportive of what I'm doing, and we've we've totally come back around. But I think at the time, it was really hard for both of us. Like I didn't want to disappoint her, and then she was. Like you said, like I think really scared for me and wanted good things for me and and saw it as like, you know, I never should have let you go to Berkeley kind of thing. Um, maybe, <laughs> well, maybe a little bit. And in this, no. I think this brings up interesting questions or an interesting point about uh, the balance between you know doing what you love in life and pursuing that with gusto versus like having like common sense and being practical. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of writers and a lot of artists, you know, uh, a lot of people in general, but, I, you know, for, for the purposes of this show, let's just say writers, they wrestle with this. And I think a lot of us are thinking, yeah. well, you know, I've just got to work uh, that weird, you know, mindless job as like a security guard in an art museum so I don't have to think at all. And I'm making $10 an hour just so I can have time mm-hmm. to write and I'm not completely drained and all, you know, my vital energy can be poured into my art. But then you get exactly. to be like, you know, 30 and you're like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> You know, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, on, I'm a security guard at an art museum or I'm still living with yes. like seven roommates. And, you know, yep. I, I was, you know, I, I wrestled with this myself. I continue to. And there was a part of me that was looking at, you know, I think a lot of us will, will look at our heroes. And a lot of, you know, a lot of times mm-hmm. in uh, the arts, you'll see people who were very bullheaded and very single minded and willing to make enormous sacrifices and willing to do willing to make enormous gambles, essentially, on themselves. Yeah, and yeah. the, the, the hard thing is that you're, you're looking at your heroes. And so you kind of know that those gambles paid off. 
right, exactly. Like if not in if not in financial uh, if not in a financial capacity, then at least like their work is immortal. And even though they were discovered after they were dead, like they were right, you know, like right, right, right. So I I don't know, you know, like how did you navigate that? Because it sounds like. Um, you know, you, you were initially on the track of practicality and good common sense, and then you sort of veered from it. And it seems like temperamentally, you're not too much of a loose cannon, but you do have a little bit of that in you, a little bit of that, like artistic, Mm -hmm. you know, gambler or whatever. So where are you with that now? And and how have you navigated? I mean, I I feel like I navigate it all the time. I, I feel like it's the constant back and forth and, um, and, and it is, like you said, it's like my sort of sense of practicality and just like, I want to know I can pay the rent. I want to have health care at all times. Right. I, I, want, I want these super practical things and I'm not really the kind of person who's like, I'm going to live out of a van for six months, you know. <laughs> right. I just I don't have that kind of disposition. So um, I've, I've wrestled with that just over and over and over again for years and some of the best advice I got was from this choreographer that I've worked with for years now who just told me like you're never gonna figure it out <laughs> like this is just this is what it is like you you might have to change jobs a lot you might change the ratio of like how much art is in your life versus how much you're working to support yourself and hoping to make time for art but it's like it's constantly going to be a struggle and that won't ever stop unless you can actually decide like okay i'm not going to do art anymore or unless you, you know, just make like a shit ton of money somehow. Yes, unless you luck out right. and, and make a shit ton of money. But but it's also like you said, it's that thing of like even if you do luck out and make a shit ton of money, you you were the person who kind of had this like steady pace with getting there, as opposed to this like wild free fall of energy and hope and like I'm just gonna take this giant risk and you know tell my boss to fuck off and <laughs> you know, hope that this all works and. Um, you know, I'm just I'm just not quite that person. I also haven't really. It's like one thing to have heroes that are kind of these stories you can read about, but I feel like I've done a lot of scanning in my everyday of like, who are the people around me that are, you know, writers, dancers, artists in some way, and like, what are they doing to make it work, and who's got a good model? Who does? Who does? <laughs> Tell me. Oh God! <laughs> you walked right, oh, man, out, you walked right into that one, right? <laughs> um, I mean. Definitely some of the teachers that I know seem to have a pretty good model. And again, it's not like they don't struggle, but it's like they they teach, they write, they manage to find a balance with the two things. Um, well, what about uh, Dave Eggers? You're published on McSweeney's. He's got it figured out. It seems like he... Oh, yeah. He's, he's no, got he a, definitely... He's got, a, I feel like he's he's got like, a lot of things figured out. Yeah, how did yeah. he do it? I want to talk to him. What's his deal? I don't... Yeah, please talk to him and find <laughs> out, because if there's a recipe for that, it would be great. I mean, not only is it like figured out but you know fingers in so many pies and then like charity work all over the place and you know it, it's just it's super impressive you're like who is this person right is this person um, human like is this another yeah like yeah is, well and i still don't know yeah i'm not sure he's like is he, <laughs> he like might the, be is bionic he, somewhere in there is, <laughs> I mean, have you ever met him is he like the wizard behind the curtain when you get published by mcsweeney's these days do you ever meet him yes oh yeah i think he's the wizard behind a lot of curtains yeah um, and I did, I did get to meet him and he helped edit the book, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's just this like very, very supportive, enthusiastic, you know, unassuming guy. Like he's, he had like a baseball cap on and a t-shirt and he's just, 
wanted to talk about like me and my book and I'm like, but you're David. <laughs> you know, like, why are we talking about me right now? But, um, but it, yeah, it made so much sense meeting him of like, when you, when you meet someone with that much like enthusiasm and charisma, it's like, of course they're doing all these different things and started like eight to six and right. tutoring for kids and, you know, just all this, all these different things. It's like, okay, this makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, un- it's unbelievable. So, um, so you get out of college, you have this molecular biology degree, you're dancing mm-hmm. at this point, uh, yeah. and, and then you wind up getting a, an MFA in creative writing. So when, when did yeah, that happen? And did, when did the EM, when did the EMT stuff happen? When did the MFA happen? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so I worked a lot of odd jobs, danced, did that for, I don't remember maybe five, six years. And then, like you were saying, it's like you kind of see 30 looming around the corner and you're like, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? And you mentioned the art museum. That's not what I was doing at the time. I think I was working at a lab doing bench work, um, which was a perfectly fine job. There's nothing wrong with that job. But, um, but yeah, I just, I just thought I can't do this. And I was really tired of scraping by. And, you know, San Francisco is a super expensive place to live even then. Um, it's much worse now. And I, I just was like, you know, I never get to take a vacation. <laughs> I'm just like, you're in the gerbil wheel. It's like, perform, 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 perform. And you're like afraid to say no to any project that comes along. Because what if you never dance again? Um, so I was just really tired and um, kind of sick of what that looked like. So I was like, I'm going to just do this massive shift. Like I, I decided to move to L.A. I decided to stop dancing um, I had some ideas, like maybe I can go into stunts in the movies, which <laughs> really, um, I did. Yeah, <laughs> again, like practicality, like what? <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like I knew a couple people in the movie industry, and I was like, I've got some circus background, you know. I, like, I'm wait, you worked in the cir- you, wor- you worked in the circus? Well, no, I did. I did a bunch of training at the Circus Center in San Francisco and like hand balancing and acrobatics. So I was like, I can in some aerial stuff. So I was like, I, maybe I could go be a stunt person. So I went and actually, this this is where it gets really weird. But I became an EMT partially as a way to get on set because I basically did my research. I was like, what's the easiest way to get on set? Like, I don't want to be that person with like, here's my headshot and resume, and you just try to like sneak on set and for the stunt coordinator and hope for the best. I was like, I want to be, I want to be there, you know? So you actually only need to be an EMT in order to be a set medic. So that's what I did. I became an EMT, took four weeks and then, um, became a set medic and like had a bag of supplies and started working on movies that way, which basically the person you're going to hang out with is like the stunt coordinator and stunt people because they're the ones doing the riskiest, stuff um and I started to kind of train with them but then the movie industry was like just so not for me and that became obvious kind of quickly so what was it just the people oh man <laughs> just the, all of oh, man. <laughs> well I mean the, the actual like some of the people I met were great actually getting to train on like some stuff or like do a little bit of that was super fun um but it's the um, just kind of the nature of the business, like you are constantly looking for the next thing. It is it 
there's a way in which people meet you and they're, they're sort of scanning you and going like, what can you do for me? Who do you know? Right. You know, how are you going to get me further into this business where there's more money? And it's, and it's all about the money. Like, right. I think that was one of the hardest things is I was like, wow, there's like very little art making going on here. There's this, there's this formula and there's so many people. And it was like so extravagant compared to what I was used to in terms of just the, the budget, man. It's like if you get a couple grand, you can make a dance, like with <laughs> right. lights and tech and a live musician. But I mean, that's a it's a very small budget, but like you can make it work, you know. And this is millions of dollars, and and people don't give a shit. Like <laughs> there's this way in which it's like, you know, people haven't read the script. They don't care. They're hoping that like being on that set is going to land them a gig with Julia Roberts or something. Like it's just, it was super hard to not only be around that, but start to become that of like, oh, how am I going to get in and how am I going to make this work? And I was like, well, I don't, I don't like what I'm turning into so quickly. And I li- like, and then, I'm, I'm starting to shrink in my chair because I live in LA and like, I'm, I'm trying to write scripts <laughs> and I'm just like, oh God, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I totally get it. I mean, it's like, it's a tough, there's just a lot of people, there's a lot of money and yeah. the bitch of it is that it costs a lot of money to live in Los Angeles. So I think a lot yeah. of people are doing it as, I mean, there's a practical aspect to it. And then there's also a point at which it can become a disease. But, um, yes. you know, I, I think that uh, there's just a lot of people vying for not a huge number of seats at the table, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I totally get it. It's in the air and people are sort of, it's very, trans, like relationships can feel transactional when you're dealing with a lot yes. of people in the same business. And yes. Maybe it's the same way up in San Francisco in like tech. I have no idea, you know, but it, Probably, yeah, probably not to probably not to the same degree or in the same way, but you know, you know, yeah. you, you tell me. I guess I you haven't worked in tech, but maybe you. I haven't worked in can, tech. It's like the one area I have not been. <laughs> <laughs> you could be like a dan- You could be like a dancer in the next like iPhone commercial or something. You know. Yeah, that sounds good. So okay, so you come down. You're an EMT. You're you're sort of like you know in and around Hollywood and entertainment, but then you decide that's not for you. So then you become like an on the street EMT, like in the in the ambulance. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think I, I had such a bad taste in my mouth from Hollywood that I was like, I want to do something that feels like very honest and real and <laughs> basic, you know, which is exactly what that work is. Um, and I think I also started to, you know, again, just because I've been having doubts and struggling and being like, what am I doing with my life? I was like, this might be a really good way to revisit this idea of like, you know, essentially becoming a doctor again or trying to become a doctor or a nurse or something like it would I be drawn enough to this kind of work to actually settle down quit trying to do art and um you know commit to kind of like a stable normal quote-unquote life so it just seemed like a way to kind of solve all of those things And, and you can do that job with four weeks of training isn't that scary? They'll send you out there. Like, so if I have like, if I have a heart attack, oh, yeah. the person who shows up could be like a <laughs> month into it. Oh, totally. I mean, that was one thing. So while I worked on movie sets, a whole bunch of stuff, actually, I'm kind of a black cloud. Like when I worked in the field, I, there was just an extraordinary amount of calls and not as many people get, I think, of a certain type of call. And the same thing was happening to me on the movie set. 
and no one had any idea that I was like a brand spanking new. <laughs> it's like, you know, and most of the time it's like, oh, you have a Band-Aid, you have Advil, you know, it's like you're sort of a Walgreens. Right. Um, but then a couple, like one day there was this insane car crash that basically happened on set. Like the this driver had fallen asleep at the wheel on the freeway and his truck flipped over and landed on set. Um so with the, so the, driver, are, the driver wasn't related to the movie. This was just like a... No, completely unrelated. Whoa. But so the walkie-talkies are blowing up. <laughs> it's like, Semantic, Semantic. I was like, oh my God. You're like, like, oh shit. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's like my first real call is just me. Like usually even if you just have the four weeks of training and then go out there, you've got like eight other people on scene. You know what I mean? You've got your ambulance partner, you've got the fire department, maybe you have the cops. Like, there's, it's never just you normally, but here I was as a set medic. And I was like, okay, like, here's how, let's drag this person from the car and like, you know, put on a collar and put on some oxygen. And I don't know, the whole thing was super intense. I guess. Yeah. Um, so what movie was it? Yeah. What, uh, what happened? The guy just flipped his car off. He fell asleep and flipped on like off the highway and then, I don't yeah, and he was fine. He was totally fine. He was driving just like a pickup truck on the on the freeway, but our our set base was like right next to right next to the freeway, basically. So yeah, his truck, his pickup truck flipped, and then he ended up being com- like, as far as I could tell, completely fine. I mean, he was like covered in glass, no broken bones, no his skin hadn't been broken open anywhere, no- nothing on his head, completely like alert oriented. He kept asking to see his fiance. He was just like, he just—it's like he just woke up and was like, "Oh, here I am in this new place." Was he under a hypnol? What was happening with this guy? It seems like he was on. Um, he wasn't on anything. I think he'd just been working a ton, and um, I don't remember like what the company was or what the, the exact job was. But it sounds like he'd just been working insane hours. I mean, uh-huh. He's young. He's like twenty-two, probably, and and just. Yeah, was shouldn't have been driving, and instead fell asleep. He'd had his seatbelt on. The car rolled, and like, I think because he was so relaxed too, right. like, he he was fine. Yeah, I fell asleep at the wheel yesterday. No, I was no. at yeah, I was, but I was at a red light, and I was with my wife and my child, <laughs> and <laughs> I was just at a red light, and I like closed my eyes, and then like my all of a sudden I feel my wife like you know like slapping me in the chest and i was like what she's like the light you know turned green and i was like oh sorry <laughs> she's like do you want you know do you want to switch but like my adrenaline shot up and i was fine after that but you know were you on something or i would yes i was on heroin actually i was uh <laughs> I was, Fair enough. yeah opiates are crazy that way so yeah. um okay so then you're out and i want to hear about you know about being out on call, like where you're at large as an EMT and you get the call and you're all of a sudden you're in the middle of a crazy situation. Cause I have to imagine working in a city as big as Los Angeles, you were, it wasn't long before you were confronted with some stuff. Yeah, no, it didn't, it didn't take much time at all. Um, it's funny. I mean, some of it is there, there are plenty of calls you go on that are like pretty, I don't want to say ordinary in terms of like you have sort of your basic chest pain call or your abdominal pain call or your shortness of breath call and you have these different kind of algorithms that you follow depending on the nature of the call, whether it's like medical or traumatic. Um, And once you kind of get used to it, they all start to run together a little bit unless something unusual happens. Um, And then you have your calls that are definitely a little worse or known for being worse. 
um, you know, like gunshot wounds and stabbings and pretty much anything with kids or babies um, or if there's like a really bad accident or that kind of thing. But in general, it's not, I know most people have kind of this image of like, you know, you get the call and you go in and then it's just nuts, right? It's like, there's like blood and glass everywhere or something. And, and it's really not, you know, it's really not like that. Not that you don't get the, the bump of adrenaline um, and all that, but it's, it's, it's sort of, it, I don't, it's funny how quickly it can become routine and you're like, okay, this is what's going on. And it's also funny how often people will call for no good reason. Like I, I responded to somebody who had a paper cut once. I responded to somebody, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I responded to somebody who, um, like a little bit of hot water had bubbled up or something and, and splattered. And it, like, we couldn't even find a mark. We kept looking at her arm being like, where, <laughs> where did this happen? How old was this person? What is this? Um, she was probably, I'd say 31, 32. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, and I've, and I've heard all kinds of stories that are worse than that. I responded to a guy who had a hangover. I mean, it was like sort of this classic thing for a long time. I wanted to make like a short film out of it somehow, but cause it was just, you have to ask so many questions when, when, <laughs> when something's not that wrong with someone where you're just, you're kind of looking <laughs> for the reason. Like, what are you going to tell the triage nurse when you get there, you know? And talking to this young guy, I mean, he just, he pulled over and he was talking, I mean, he just had all the signs and symptoms of a hangover. You know, he had a headache. He'd had nothing to eat that day. He hadn't had water since he couldn't remember when. He'd spent the entire night drinking wine. <laughs> like, kind of like three bottles, you know, or something. Um, yeah. and just on and on, it was like, well, freaking take some Advil's water and eat breakfast. Like, why do you want to go to the emergency room? Yeah. What is, I mean, cause I mean, that feels like people might be like mentally ill or something. And like, if you're, you have a paper cut and you call it an ambulance, like, are, is, like, are people, do they, is there like a component of people being like super paranoid? Cause I know there are people who have like a medical paranoia, you know, and like they can, they mm-hmm. can. You know, they can catastrophize the smallest ailment and then suddenly, you know, I, oh, my God, I'm dying. I need to go to the hospital. Like, was that a component of it or? As far as I could tell, like with the examples I just gave, no, which is which is what's so interesting. I mean, I think some of it is um, there. There did seem to be a lot of ignorance around um, sort of medicine in general, which at, at times is incredibly heartbreaking, but it just seemed like people aren't used to going to see the doctor for things. Um, so there would be this way in which they'd call an ambulance. Like the joke was it was either too early or too late. Like you, they, they call for something really silly, like a paper cut. You're just like, well, what, what's well, put a band on it. Like, why would you call 911? And also you're using valuable resources. Like what if your next door neighbor starts having a heart attack and some unit has to come from, 10 minutes away to get to them, like it could have been us on scene actually saving his life. You know, I got, that's where it starts to get really frustrating that you're like, don't like my time is actually super valuable in terms of what I do. Um, but then you also have this other, the flip side of it, which is that, um, I mean, one of the worst ones is like this, this older man, uh, had signs and symptoms of a stroke for four days, five days. And his wife, he kept saying, oh, I, I should go to, we should take me to the hospital. I need to go to the hospital. And his wife kept saying, like, oh, let's go, can we go to the library today? Like, I just want to do this 
I want we'll go tomorrow. I want to like return this book. And so he basically had this slow, you know, slow stroke thing that was going on. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't, that's one of the things with being an EMT, you don't actually know a lot of times what happens, but I think he probably lost the use of his right arm completely in a way that would have actually been preventable. Um, that's grounds, that's grounds for divorce right there. (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. I mean, just, and that was one of the things where as you're going through the question, you know, not questionnaire, but like, as you're going through the like sort of mental checklist of trying to figure out like, when did this start and how has it been changing? And, you know, are you on medicines and who have you seen and all of that stuff to kind of, you start to put the story together, you know, and, and putting that story together in particular was like, Oh my God, you've got to be kidding. Yeah. And, and who's going to tell him? At what point is he going to find out? Like, actually, this would have been completely preventable. Well, it's like it's like any, any any kind of situation where human error is the cause of either loss of life or significant disability or something. Like even like Joan Rivers, mm-hmm. like recently, like you look at her, like you know, when she was she was eighty one, but like you didn't get the sense that she was on her way out. She had a lot of uh, right. energy, and then she goes in for the surgery, and like. I, I want to say like they were going to, you know, the doctor on the scene was like, oh, I see a polyp. Like while she was under, they're like, oh, let's remove that. Even though like she wasn't in there to do that. And like they did that, her vocal cords and her throat seize up. She can't breathe. Her heart stops. She dies. And it's like, right. dude, you know, like you just made a mistake that cost this woman her life. You know, like right. that is, uh, that's intense, you know, human error. And it could be something like uh, medical. It could be something mechanical. It could be like the driver of a bus, you know. It's not. Right. Health, it's probably not healthy to think about that too much. <laughs> you know. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, like just the human element. Um, so did you like? You know, you must have seen. You know, I know a lot of these things were kind of like wrote after a while, and and some of them were sort of comically minor. But you also must have seen some pretty heavy stuff too, inevitably. No, definitely. Like people dying on scene. You know, like how do you deal with that when you've never dealt with it before? I mean, do you? Um, I don't know what I would do, you know? I mean, do you just go numb? Like, are you prepared for it? Is there any way to prepare? Um, I don't think there's any way to prepare. I I think one of the things that ends up kind of being a, a sort of odd comfort zone for people in that situation is having tasks in this weird way. Um, I mean, I think if you're the person who's... If someone's dying, you have a lot to do. You know, you're you're trying to keep them from dying even if they were technically already dead you're doing CPR you're trying to bring them back um and you're trying to keep track of everything that's happening so that you have this sort of documentation too of like what's been done and at what time and how exactly the vitals have been dropping or so there's this way in which you can I think that creates a certain distance um in a much different way than showing up to someone's house and just literally watching it happen and that's all you you know if you're if you're just a witness if you're like a pure witness how do you what do you do you know what i mean like how do you right. handle that right. um how do you process it afterwards but i think when it comes to medicine it's it's this weird it's tricky place because on the one hand you have something to do you actually don't have time to emotionally react in the moment it's like things even if things come up or like a certain surge of empathy hits you you're like put that away right now like <laughs> no time like, you know and just, well and it would be a disservice too like it's one of those weird that's the other thing that's odd about it is like you actually don't want to be too empathetic on scene because that's not what you're there for you're there to do your job and try to help the person as best you can um 
And if you get emotional, you're not going to be able to help them. Right. Um, See, that I, definitely right. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, I always think of it. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, you, you, you imagine yourself like, what if I were out somewhere and some, somebody were to drop, you know, the heart attack right in front of me and I was the person on the scene. Like, mm-hmm. how would I, how would I handle it? You know, would I be, mm-hmm. would I be clutch? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Or would, yeah, I, yeah. would my knees be knocking and would I be a disaster? And then there's also, a, yeah. I think like a part of me and I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, but there's like, what if like somebody really gross, like somebody who's unkempt, <laughs> I'm serious, you know, somebody who's like unkempt yeah, yeah. or like a homeless person or somebody yep. and like, you're like, what? And then you got to do CPR and you're like, oh, like, did you ever have any situations like that? Like, do you just tune it out? Like, are you a person? You know, I mean, is that even, am I, reveal- oh, yeah. am, I mean, I re- am I revealing myself to be a small, <laughs> you know, like a small hearted person by even bringing that oh, up? Does anyone have some perfume? Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you get used to it. I think it, there's so much, there's so much in the way of like bodily fluids and odors and, yeah. um, you just get really good at like dodging things and, Ugh. um, having the appropriate garments on and, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's definitely part of it, and I think at some point you get really it, it becomes part of the routine a little bit. But do you notice it definitely? And um, yeah, I mean, there was one guy in particular I was remembering the other day because I was trying to explain to my friends about a this friend of mine is like obsessed with a, sort of survival plans in a in a way. So she's like, okay, if I'm out in the woods and you know, I was I would get poked by a twig and it popped one of my lungs, like, what would I do? Should I put duct tape on the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, if, she, if she's got like a, if she's got like a puncture wound, do you mean? Like one of her? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're supposed to leave so it in. Like, you're supposed to leave it in, right? Oh yeah. No, you're good. Um, right. Yeah. You are supposed to leave it in and just kind of actually help hold it in place rather than pull it out to sort of secure it. But I think she was talking about like, well, anyway, I, I ended up talking to her about the whole um, sucking chest wound thing and collapse on and I'm like okay if you put the duct tape on then you gotta like make sure to burp it every once in a while there's uh. <laughs> like all this trapped air <laughs> there. but then it was reminding me of this story of this guy who just man I, I mean he might have been the one who like smelled the worst out of everybody <laughs> across. but he basically had had a sucking chest wound I would say for at least a week maybe two weeks and it had his shirt had kind of formed a scab over it somehow so it was almost like having a dirty dressing on there like it it kept him alive it was like shocking that he was alive but it was I mean just the infection of it was so bad you could smell and he was really altered like he had no idea who he was or where he was I you know we have no idea how he came to get that wound in the first place but it was so unbelievable that he was even alive that I remember like everyone in the hospital coming down to look at him once we got him into a room. Just because he was like a, everyone, I mean, it's almost like a freak show, but no, (laughs) I guess that's not the way to put it. But, uh, I had a friend who, you know, um, went through something similar where like when you're like that rare of a medical case, like they'll actually like, like, Hey, Charlie, come down and see this. (laughs) The word I'm looking for is like spectacle or something, you know, but there's like, it becomes, it becomes of scientific interest. Yes. So I want to ask you about triage, um, in the context of emergency medical treatment, because this is something that's haunted me. Like I took a, um, wilderness first responder course when I was like a young, man. So I'm like certified. I was certified. 
Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I think I would be fairly worthless in the wilderness if, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you broke your leg. Duct like tape. That, I, yeah, duct tape <laughs> and maybe like a split, yeah. like with a stick or something. But I took like a, sure. a, a course and I got certified. And, you know, they talk about triage and they talk about if you come upon a group of people and they're all, mm-hmm. you know, catastrophically injured or really badly injured, you sort of assess which one has the best chance of survival and like that's the one you go to. And, you know, the other yeah. one, the other ones could still be alive, but you sort of have to make this really, you know, strange and seemingly cold yeah. decision that like you die, you know, or like I can't help you because you are, you know, too hurt. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You, you have, you mean, how many triage type situations were you involved in? Um, I mean, there's like two I can think of, but they weren't triage in that sort of classic um, textbook example way of um, like there, there's some, sometimes you get on a scene of an accident, you're the first ones there and there's like three cars involved and five people. So there's triage in the sense of going through and seeing, kind of cataloging everyone's um, injuries before you start treating anybody because you're trying to figure out who the most critical one is. Um, but it wasn't a situation where, you know, someone was dying or anything like that. So it wasn't quite as, quite as crazy as that, which I'm glad that I didn't have to be yeah. in a situation like that. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's like sort of, that was like sort of my, uh, my great fear. Like, fortunately I never had that happen, but, um, briefly, I was recently, I don't know if you listened to the show, but I was recently like uh, criticized for talking too much about my own anecdotes, but this feels very germane. <laughs> At, like right after I got certified for this first responder thing, I was witness to a car accident where I was the first person on the scene and like the car flew up into the air. So I yeah. went, I went into my, like, you know, you start, you sort of get procedural, especially at the beginning. I kind of was going through a mental checklist, but I mm-hmm. went in and it was like the car, there were two uh, girls in the car. They seemed okay, but they were out of it. And like one of them, um, I noticed like she like basically looked like her brains were coming out of her head and she mm-hmm. starts talking to me and she was Asian and she didn't speak good English and she was injured. So it was jumbled and she was saying something to me that I couldn't make out. And it turns out that she was saying jello. Uh, and she had, wow. been, she had been eating jello when the accident happened and the jello was in her hair and I thought it was her brains. <laughs> like, so, oh, wow. <laughs> so she was essentially like helping me. She's like, no dude, it's jello. Chill out. Like, oh. she, great yeah she was like reading my, she was like reading my face i was like oh god I calm yeah. down <laughs> so yeah that, that clearly not yeah. my line of work but um so at what point do you get out of uh being an emt and what i mean i'm, I'm assuming like the stories that you're amassing are starting to uh give you some ideas about uh possible literary effort like are you thinking like okay i i need to find a way to express this artistically or i'm gonna have great stories to tell or was it just a case of like i'm burned out by this because i feel like um you know that type of work can often lead to um you know great stress emotional stress Mm -hmm. and otherwise and and like how did that transition happen for you you know it it was sort of it was pretty bizarre um but what happened was i mean you don't you don't sleep very regularly as an EMT and like you, you know, there's a lot of stress and it does catch up with you. And, um, I remember there was just one night where I woke up in the middle of the night and had words in my head and I just started compulsively writing them down and it ended up being a short story that later got published. Um, and it was, what was so strange about it to me besides just that surreal moment of like, 
not being used to waking up with words in my head in that way. Uh, but it was also the, um, the content was about this woman that I'd run a call on like two months before who I didn't even, I wasn't even thinking about her. Like she, I hadn't had any like active conscious thought about her in a really long time. And so it was kind of strange. It almost felt like a haunting or something to wake up and, and think like, Oh, I have to write this down. And, and then it was like, had all these details about this woman that I hadn't even been focused on in any way. So that kind of, that sort of where things started for me. And, um, I actually found like trying to write about calls right after they happened or writing about them as a way to process them did not work for me. Like I still have a couple just total duds like in the trash bin, which were some of my worst calls or just some of the things that were the hardest for me for whatever reason. And I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to write about them, but um, sort of getting on this other, this other sort of surface level of like, okay, which ones stick with me and why, and then trying to write about them, like, after I kind of digested it a little bit, ended up being really effective, and I started to get into a rhythm with that. So then, yeah, a collection of those short stories got published, and then I started to think about, okay, how do I, you know, I've I've just loved fiction novels my whole life, and I was like, do I have it in me to try to write a book? And, um which was super scary at the time. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, and then it was sort of like the, the like quintessential moment came of like, I, this is, you know, fast forward a year and a half basically. Cause I, I ended up doing EMT work for almost three years, but fast forward a little bit. And I, it was, it was kind of like this do or die. Okay. What road am I going to pick? Because I had an application to this, like, you know, pre-med school program of you go a post-bac program, I guess, where you just go and get your, requirements for med school um and i also had an application in front of me to go to a writing program or to try to go to a writing program um both of which are super competitive yeah um and i yeah, well, had been but only, working on... only one of which confers automatic you know esteem in our culture <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so yeah i was i was working on both simultaneously and then the day the the stories came out I was like oh my kidding like I keep doing this you know I just keep doing this of like no I'm going to do this practical thing and then like even with the EMT work of like okay I'm not going to dance anymore and I'm going to go do this other line of work like it's not how it worked out you know I'm still kind of any, any it's almost like anytime I need something personally art is what I turn to you know it's like I'm going through a hard time, I need a dance class, (laughs) you know, or I I need to read a good book or I need to go see a show or there's, there's something about the level of comfort all of that brings me that is so different than I think the comfort that like medicine can provide. Not that it's not completely important and necessary and esteemed and all of that, but I I just, at some point I was like, you know what, I I need to stop pretending that I'm going to be this other person and go with what actually feels like this total compulsion well, it's, yeah, it's in your heart. And, uh, like, it just occurs to me, like, I think you should maybe try to write, like, EMT the musical or something, you know. <laughs> Combine Yes, <that>. the drag <laughs> queens. That would be great. I feel like <laughs> Broadway needs that. They need to see EMT the musical. Yeah. can envision it. So you make that call. And, like, that's admirable <laughs> to me because I feel like, you know, some people, um, I feel like there's there's courage in that. 
um, you know, one of these paths seems to have, um, you know, a more comfortable life or the odds of a more comfortable life financially are certainly laid out before you if you're thinking of a medical career. Um, though I guess like, you know, some might dispute that it depends what kind of doctor you are and, you know, but, yeah. but you know, between being a writer and being a doctor, it's certainly a, right. a lot more stable. Um, I don't think everybody makes that call. So it's like, kudos to you for saying, um, this is who I am and I'm going to be true to myself and go for it. Um, at the same time, I'm curious, do you ever have second thoughts? Like, do you ever like have, since you've made that call, have you ever looked back and been like, fuck, I should have gone and been a doctor. <laughs> mm. No, I haven't. And I think especially now, because um, now my day job, I work at UCSF doing clinical research. So I work pretty closely with um, a handful of doctors and nurse practitioners. And they're incredible. I mean, it, it's just watching what they do. They work with really sick kids um, who have you know, just horrible diseases like cystic fibrosis or, you know, really severe asthma or other pulmonary problems. And, um, I, I so admire what they do, and um, and I I wouldn't want it, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like I just kind of see what that's like, and I'm like, wow, yeah. I don't I don't think I I think I made absolutely the right decision in terms of you know I'm, I'm sort of a support system for them in terms of what I do, but I'm also removed from it, and I go and do this other thing, um, and that that feels exactly right. Yeah. How do you stay? How do you deal with like if you're a doctor and you're working with sick kids day in and day out, often like gravely ill children, just to give an example, like how do you keep it together? Like I, you know, like what kind of constitution do you have to have, um, you know, emotionally in order to be able to process that? And do you know what I'm saying? Like that seems heavy to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do people, how does a human being do that? Don't you need like therapy or, you know? I, yeah, no, I've been fascinated with that question for a long time, um, and I think that's part of it's a lot of what drove uh, the book I ended up writing. Because I, yeah, and I don't think that any of the people that I work with would have an easy answer to that. Um, but yeah, even working as an EMT and at some point as a field training officer and like training people, I kept looking for that. You know, it's like who is the person who's just going to be completely fine with this job and and never, um, not never struggle, but just like, who's the person who's going to just bounce back and keep the rhythm and, and, you know, just be able to keep surging ahead with this line of work and not have it get to them or like fundamentally change them. Um, and I, I never saw a case, you know, I never, I never saw anybody who didn't, um, really go through some pretty severe ups and downs, um, or even like big changes in personality in order to kind of deal with what was getting put in front of them like ptsd um, stuff where you have i mean like if you're like an emergency room surgeon like those guys have to go through some traumatic stress right yeah 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 no i, I got really curious about um pts and ptsd because of that and i mean there are some there are some differences in terms of uh like there's a there's acute post-traumatic stress which can kind of wash out within a couple of weeks and then there's the sort of chronic buildup, which then becomes the disorder. Um, so, yeah, I have no idea how you diagnose these things, and I and I can't necessarily say, like, yes, all EMTs end up with PTSD <laughs> or anything like that. But I do, what I found from kind of looking into this more was that it was pretty interesting. Um, people talk about burnout all the time, and definitely I went through a few rounds of burnout, um, and I, I don't know anybody who didn't go through a round of burnout. And people are really casual about it. But then 
if you, if, when I started researching PTS and PTSD for the book, um, that's when I was like, oh wow, there's a lot of similarities <laughs> between these these discussions around post-traumatic stress and burnout. Like, are they the same thing? Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to ask. Everything. Did you get? Yeah. Did you feel like you were in post-traumatic stress at all? Um, I mean, I think there were definitely a couple times where, yeah, I would say that's accurate. Um, I don't think I ever, it, basically, if I ended up with PTSD at any point, I don't know. It's like, I don't, I don't think of myself as having that, but I, I do, um, I do remember like there were a few times where just like really bad mood changes or, or like really overreacting to stuff, um, or just being, just having no patience for things, um. Sounds, Probably as a result. Sounds of, like it sounds like me almost every day. <laughs> maybe, maybe I have maybe I have this. Yeah. Well, that's that's where it gets tricky. I think is like there's there can be this us and them thing that happens with topics like PTSD, where you're like, oh, just just people who go to war get that, you know, um, or or it can swing the other way of like I have PTSD from that really bad movie. Um, right. Right. So, <laughs> so it's like how how do you talk about it? like at, at what point is the term helpful and and sort of leads the way to good sort of research and therapy ideas and all that. And at what point is it not helpful anymore? Well, yeah, and it's like, making me feel bad because, like, I've used that joke before, like, oh, God, I have PTSD from, like, Facebook yeah. or something. And then, yeah. or it's like, it, it, reminds, <laughs> it reminds me of that Louis C.K. bit where, like, he's like, quit telling everyone that you're starving, okay? Like, you know, like, <laughs> children... People are like, oh, God, yeah. I haven't eaten lunch yeah. today, I'm starving. And it's like, it's like a, you know, it's a... I mean, I right. get it. it's context, but it, you know, misuse of words and what you know when you realize what you're actually saying and what that actually means, it can uh, bring shame. You know, maybe quiet, right. quiet moment of shame. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to exaggerate your condition. But like, I feel like I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I never went in for treatment, but I remember like I, I had a friend of mine uh, take his own life when I was in college, and that's probably like the most upset that I've ever been. Um, it was yeah. like, it just like, it's such a shock, you know? And like, I never saw a shrink. I never got any yeah. therapy, but like, I could see maybe like for a while, I, I didn't sleep at all. Like I was like, mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. I was just, I was just scared to go to sleep or something. It was a very disturbing emotional experience. And like, maybe that was a form of traumatic stress. Yeah. I, I have no idea, Oh yeah, you know, but that's like yeah, sort of right to me. hindsight's 2020, you know, you can kind of like diagnose yourself in the rear view mirror and, um, yeah. you know. I don't know what it was, but it, I, it certainly wasn't good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then you, you know, you write this book, uh, and now, and then you're, you're working your day job. You said as like a, a lab assistant or what are you doing? What's the name of it? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I do, um, I do clinical research. So it's, it's like, you know, I work a handful of clinical trials and you're trying to organize all the details of how to, schedule people and get them here and if there's an investigational drug you work with the, with the pharmacy on that and you just document everything and you have to write up the um like the proposal in the first place of trying to get the um trying to get it approved by the regulatory board and submit any kind of paperwork if anything comes up or if someone has an adverse event um so it's like i mean i i like that there's patient contact because that was one thing I really did like about being an EMT like I don't I don't really like just being in a lab working with test tubes um, right right or just dealing with paperwork or data entry or that kind of thing so it's kind of nice to have both like sometimes I'm actually with the kids um or the adults and 
talking to them and collecting data directly or doing procedures or whatever. And then other times it's just me and my computer, you know. So, and then, and then you're writing and then are you still dancing? You said earlier you're still dancing. Yeah. Okay. So you're doing it all. I know. <laughs> it's a little much. But do you have, yeah. like a, have, has your primary identity at least internally shifted? Like, do you see, do you see yourself now creatively like I'm a writer or... Is it still, are you still just like a, and forever going to be a hybrid? You know, like I'm a dancer, I'm a writer, I'm a, you know, like how do, how do you define yourself? Do you feel like a shift now that you've been publishing? And It definitely feels like a shift. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard not to keep comparing it to dance because it really is just such a different artistic experience of, you know, it's just, it's very lonely. Like you're, <laughs> I've worked on this book for four years, basically by myself and, it comes out and it's like people are buying it and talking about it and um, reviewing it and, and all of it. so it's like this sort of like silence for so long and then it's like little mini explosion or something so that's um, it's great but it's it's very different um, from what I'm used to and um, yeah it does it does feel like a shift in terms of okay I'm I'm, I'm sort of I've, kind of become this thing that I've long admired in terms of like I can actually hold this thing in my hand of like here's a book you know yeah you're legit um, which is it's just life-changing <laughs> yeah well I think it's uh, I think it's great and uh, I congratulate you on your success and I certainly wish you I mean are you working on another book or are you are you just enjoying the I am wow so you're, you're going yeah well, I'm going what, what is um, it a novel or it's a novel it's a weird one um I mean, not that the first one wasn't weird, but it's a weird one. I There's a really unusual disease that I learned about while I was here, so that's playing a, um, a part in it. But there's this crazy disease called um, FOP, or fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. It's a very long uh, full name of it. But um, it's a disease where our muscle turns into bone. Oh. Um, it's a rare genetic thing. It's also called stone man's disease. So um, it's it's really bizarre and heart-wrenching and um, i was gonna say so you're working on a comedy is what you're <laughs> yeah well actually it kind of is a dark comedy oh, okay. now that you say that like the character who has it wants to be a stand-up comedian so there's it, it's there's a bunch of stuff going on but um wow yeah well that's interesting i i wish you well uh wish you well on it and i congratulate you again and, and just thank you so much for for taking the time to talk i've really enjoyed it Thank you. This is fun. Okay, guys, there we go. That is Courtney Moreno. Go get her novel, her debut novel. It's called In Case of Emergency. It's available now from McSweeney's Books. And uh, you can find Courtney online at CourtneyMoreno.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. This podcast has its own app, and it's free. And it's available where you uh, where you find apps in the App Store, in the Amazon Marketplace, etc. Uh, if you have an iPhone, you can get the app. If you have a uh, what do you call it? What's the other What's the other one? You know what I'm talking about? A non iPhone. <laughs> um, shit! Why can't I remember that? Anyway, get the app. It's free. And then when you have it, the most recent 50 episodes will be available right there on the app, free of charge. And if you want to download. Uh, or listen to episodes in the deeper archives, you can sign up for premium right there within the app and support the show. It's a good deal. Uh, if you want to send me some uh, mail, 
the address is letters at other ppl.com. That's letters at other ppl.com. I like hearing from you. Uh, so bad news. Reading the bad news. I've been talking about this a lot. Just the, the shittiness of the news lately. It's overwhelming me. I'm tired of it. Not that the news has ever been great. And then there's like, you know, there's like a bit, I think it was uh, Chris Rock, years ago, talking about how the news should be bad. Otherwise, it's like normal. It's news because it's abnormal, usually. Like something really horrible happens, it's news. Something really good happens, it's not news. It's because it's more normal. Theoretically. leotarded <laughs> please remember that Mozart's face was pitted from smallpox and that Flaubert once said that hatred of the uh, of the bourgeois is the beginning of all virtue thanks to Courtney Moreno uh, that is it for now go get her book support a debut author and uh, I'll be back soon with more uh, more conversation with another writer or someone uh, in the publishing arts and uh, I hope you're doing well Hope you're having a nice day, wherever you are. I'm sending you uh, good wishes here in a very sincere manner. <laughs>